right, folks. This is Radio Blackout with DJ Blackout. Show is coming to a close. You just listened to the first of many Black Ron Hubbard mixes. Uh, Black Ron Hubbard is is where it's at. I agree. Uh, we have a very distinguished guest in the studio. Solid Liquid. Greetings and salutations, y'all. How you doing, Solid Liquid? Um, really good. It's a really lovely day out. It's just a good day all around. Yeah, you gotta enjoy those good days while they last. Yeah. About to get real crummy. Real inclement. Yeah, I I think so. So if you're listening out there, Solid Liquid urges you to enjoy yourself to the fullest. Take a step outside and take a deep, fat breath of fresh air. Wise words indeed. Um, so why don't you tell the people why you're here? Um, well, I was here to use some of the internet and to hang out, but apparently a uh, song that I made is going to get played as well. Um, so things are getting better by the second. Yeah, it's a great song. Uh, you should really listen, though, to what he's saying because, you know, you might get like too wrapped up in the incredible beats but there's some very deep lyrical content going on you should also check out the video that accompanies this jam um it's in the internet in an internet near you uh myspace.com slash solid liquid human that's solid liquid human um the three kinds you're probably already most familiar with and it features the uncompromising talents of DJ Blackout, Brian Delaney. Yeah. It's a, it's a good video. It's it's an excellent video. Um, all right. So here it is. Solid liquid. Holy smokes. Enjoy. This is gonna it's gonna take us out. Ann Arbor in the world. This is so uh yeah. I don't know what this talking is. Please enjoy. Holy smokes. Have a great day. Have a lovely evening. What's going on? There we go. Why am I hearing anything though?
little bit in charge as well. Yo, I did this for y'all. So we could all enjoy it together. Let's get this put together. Let's get this done. myself with the population, a different kind of rapper, talking a positive conversation. Shove a hoax, can use my boots and give yourselves a colonoscopy. I'll never stop, I'll never quit, I'll never compromise. 
life Unless I truly have to benefits or evenly realize Help I cannot breathe, I got a million girls on top of me Ha ha, just kidding, I kind of like it Actually, I got some real new dance The kind you ought to listen to, girl If you're very talented, then I am very interested You might be too really raw, and I got the first divorce I'll eat you up before the secret gets a little warm I'ma go ahead and say it, since no one else probably will So Liquid's got the jams that are the most built to spill A verbal permutation of all that does exist And all that also doesn't, that was the mind makes manifest Y'all better think about this stuff right here. Live your life. Speak your mind. Welcome. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have David Stephen Kalan here in the studio. His book, Charles Bukowski, Absence of the Hero, Uncollected Stories and Essays, Volume 2, 1946 to 1992. Um, and this book just out this April with City Lights. Um, David, thanks for being here on the program. Glad to be here. It's great to see you. And you're, you're going to be reading this evening at Borders, right. 7 p.m., and that's the downtown Borders, yes. right? So we're, <laughs> we've got that right. Um, so, um, and this is actually volume two, So, and you've brought both with you. You've brought volume one, right. uh, portions from a wine-stained notebook, yep. <laughs> a great title. Fragmentos uh, de un cuaderno manchado de vino in Spanish. I think in, in the Italian translation is... Uh, cavalli vincenti, which is uh, guessing the winning horses. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, so they changed the title they for the, the Italian title for the volume. Time. Yeah, right. Oh, guessing the winning horses. Guessing, yeah, because there's a piece in here about 
horse racing. So. Oh, that's that's a great title too. Both of them are. Well, welcome and thanks for being here today on on a busy day for you because you just came from teaching class right. at Eastern Michigan right. University, yes. and it was a, a literary theory class. Is it, it David? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so then you rolled on into here, and then after that you have borders. So that's right. Uh, big. And that's will you a... be reading portions from the um, from the book and talk and discuss? Doing a discussion, or yeah, what I think be... what I'll do is, uh, um, it, I brought to, to show at Borders some of the um, underground newspapers that Bukowski wrote for, because I thought people might be interested. I, he was very prolific during the '60s and wrote for the LA Free Press and for NOLA Express, which was a New Orleans underground newspaper, and uh, even for a German uh, underground uh, kind of what do you want to call it, a newspaper magazine slash called Clacto Ved Sed Steen, which is the name of a Charlie Parker song, I think, edited by Carl Wiesner in Heidelberg. And so I, I brought that. Uh, so, yeah. And that's wonderful. And you don't, do you have them with you now, too? Or uh, if only we had that webcam working already, <laughs> well, we could... No, yeah, they're in my car, unfortunately. Ah. Uh, um, and so are those... Now, how did you come by those? Because it, it, is this something that, that's actually yours, or is it on loan from an archive? Or No, actually, I, I started... The first time I heard about Bukowski was 1972. That was in L.A., and I was a student at UCLA, and I saw the Taylor Hackford documentary. I suppose Taylor Hackford's now known... Because he's the husband of Helen Mirren, mainly, but he's a he's a Hollywood was a Hollywood director, and he was drafted to do this sort of documentary of Bukowski, and it was shown. Oh, on, so it wasn't his own volition, like it wasn't his own idea then. Oh no, I'm well. Maybe I shouldn't oh, say okay. that. I, I don't know the whole history. Actually, I shouldn't have said that. No, but he um, anyway. He this was shown on P, PBS, and I was just electrified by Bukowski at that point. That was '72, so I was a kid. I was 20, 22 years old. And um, so I started reading his poetry, and then I read the uh, his novels and short stories. And then in the 80s, late 80s, 90s, I started to notice that many of his works hadn't been collected, that they were languishing in these underground newspapers and magazines. And so I started to find them through eBay and through libraries. Actually, I worked here at the U of M at the Labadee Library. There's an underground uh, anarchist library in the special collections, and they have a pretty complete set of the LA Free Press and, and NOLA and I think Open City, too. I've forgotten now, Berkeley Tribe. And uh, so I spent hours Xeroxing stuff. So, yeah, I've, I've got a pretty good collection. Now. And so and so you worked in the Labadee collection. Right, right. And so Because I noticed in the acknowledgments, um, Julie Herrera, that right. you, you, that, who heads that up. Right. That, um, and so it was part, and it's anarchy. Right. Is that also sort of the, the gist of the collection, Anarchy, and is it underground yes. press? And... Uh, I know the guy at Labadee was an anarchist, and I, but I know, uh, yeah, it's, it's countercultural stuff, basically. Right. Oh, well, great. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know what? Without further ado, let me read your short bio um, in the back of the book. Um, by as a way of introduction, David, and then if you would, um, if you wouldn't mind reading Charles Bukowski sure. as well to give us um, a short intro um, with him too. So, David Stephen Colon is the author of William Sroyan, My Real Work Is Being, The Colossus of Armenia, G.I. Gurdjieff and Henry Miller, and Charles Bukowski, Sunlight, Here I Am, Interviews and Encounters, 1963 to 1993. A quick word about that. That's out with a Michigan press. Yeah, Sundog Press in Northville. 
Sundog Press. So we're right. going to talk a little bit about that later, too. For City Lights, he has previously edited the Bukowski Anthology, Portions from a Weinstein Notebook, Uncollected Stories and Essays, 1944 to 1990. He has lectured in Paris and at many universities, including UCLA, the University of Chicago, and University of Pennsylvania, Columbia University, UC Berkeley, the European University Institute in Florence, the University of London, Harvard, and Oxford. He has taught at the University of Texas at Austin and the University of Michigan. Right here, folks. Go blue. During spring term 2009, he taught a seminar on William Sroyan at the University of Chicago. Presently, he teaches at Eastern Michigan University. So a shout out to everyone over at EMU, too, who might be listening now. Um, and some of your students, no doubt, en route to your reading this evening at Borders, 7 p.m. Yeah, it was uh, bizarre because today in the course you mentioned, the literary theory course, I I mentioned that uh, I'd be doing this. And I asked if there were anybody who anybody liked Bukowski or knew about him. And probably eight or nine students raised their hand. And actually, a girl had a Bukowski T-shirt on it. Too. So I took that as a good omen. She didn't know anything about this is this is happening today. So the gods, as Bukowski would say, are um, smiling propitiously at us, I think. And drinking some wine. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, would you mind reading yeah, that sure. short, short bio uh, for Bukowski? Because I think, I mean, maybe he doesn't need any introduction, but let's just do it anyway. <laughs> uh, Charles Bukowski was born in Andernach, Germany in 1920, brought to California at age three. Although Bukowski spent two years at L.A. City College, he was largely self-educated as a writer. He spent much time in his youth in the Los Angeles Public Library, where he encountered some of the writers whose work would influence his own. Dostoevsky, Turgenev, Nietzsche, D.H. Lawrence, Celine, E.E. Cummings, Pound, Fante, and Soroyan. He was a prolific poet and prose writer, publishing more than 50 volumes. City Lights has published several Bukowski titles, including Tales of Ordinary Madness, Notes of a Dirty Old Man, The Most Beautiful Woman in Town, and portions from a Weinstein notebook on collected stories and essays, 1944 to 1990. Charles Bukowski died in San Pedro, California on March 9, 1994. Thanks, David. And and now, did you write that bio of Bukowski for this edition? I think I did, edition? actually. That's... I think I did. I'm trying to remember if it was revised by anybody, but yeah, I think I think that was my task. Yeah, I, I was thinking that would be a piece of your writing. And we're going to hear also a, a, later on a, a piece from your introduction to the anthology. Um, now, is there going to be a volume three as well since we're... Yes. In fact, um, I'm working now on a Notes of a Dirty Old Man continued, so to speak, um, because Bukowski was so prolific, the, the actual book, Notes of a Dirty Old Man, only contains, I think, about 40 columns, which are presented sequentially without any um, break. Uh, but he wrote several hundred of these columns for the free press and the newspapers I mentioned. So, And a lot of them are very, very fine. So that's what I'm working on now. Great. Well, then you'll have to come back and we'll, we'll speak again for volume three. But but in the meantime, David, um, what it's you said that you found Bukowski when you were 22 years old right. and, and, and the, the poems, the prose electrified you. Right. How how did you come by it? Was it was it just something that you found on the street? Did someone hand it to you? Did you have it in a class? Was no, it... it was actually that the, the Hackford documentary. That was the first oh, right. I'd heard of him, right. which is odd because I had been in L.A. and I. I L.A. is a funny place. I was born there, and you probably know it's a, 
it's sort of famous, at least it was in the 40s, because Thomas Mann was there, Aldous Huxley. But wait, why uh, were you, could, yeah. you were watching PBS. Yeah, I was watching PBS. As a 22-year-old college student. Right. So that's good, good. <laughs> um, but did you know it was coming on, or it just happened to come on, and I you remember, were watching I, it? I, I have to say, it was, you know, at that point, I didn't know his work at all, but I, okay. the man himself electrified me. I mean, I, I, I thought he was a, just a fascinating person, and I, a person of genius. He just struck me as completely honest, uh, direct, uh, and gifted and tortured. And, you know, suppose all the sort of things I, as a young person identified with as a, as a, as a genius poet type, you know? And so he, I, I found him very, um, interesting in that way. And also the fact that, uh, he loved classical music and that he mm-hmm. was dedicated to writing and that he was having trouble with women all the time and he was drinking too much and all that stuff made perfect sense to me. And, uh, and, and do you think it was that you were 22 and you happened to have him enter your life? Or do you think like at 42, you would be, um, it, you would have been a, as electrified because there's something maybe in his vulnerability or in his honesty that still connects or, uh, or oh, was yeah. it the so timing I, for you? No, I think it was, uh, I think it would still be relevant. Of course it was, just coming off the end of the 60s, and I think that all that stuff was obviously in the era that, I mean, he's sort of a Dionysian character for me, and I think that some of that had to do with the fact that I was young, but I I think that, um, I mean, the writers that I liked at that age were Nietzsche and Dostoevsky and many of the writers that that, uh, that, that he adored, um, Thoreau. Uh, so uh, he represented also a kind of anarchic, um, vital energy, um, and uh, so, no, but I think I would, if I just found out about him today, I'd still like him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and I noticed that you also have this, the book, Henry Miller, as well. Was you, were you also reading Henry Miller yes, at the I time? Yes, Right. And, and was that sort of part of the gateway? Um, do you see them as, you know, compatriots or... Well, it's interesting because, uh, again, I'm a Californian, and I think there's a link between Bukowski, Soroyan, and, and Miller. Miller, of course, is from New York, but uh, lived in California. But Soroyan particularly, I, I see, because uh, my first book was on Soroyan. I'm half Armenian. Yes. My mother was Armenian. And uh, the, uh, Soroyan writes very beautifully about the Armenians of California, and he's also a very sensitive and um, poetic, lyrical writer. Uh, and I think Bukowski is also, and I think I see him... My interest in Bukowski, it's not that it came out of my interest in Soroyan, but I see them as very similar in that they, that, uh, they also both write a very fine, pure English prose. Uh, and, uh, uh, of course, Bukowski was German-American, and he suffered some prejudice as a child being German-American. Um, and also the freedom of being a Californian. I think there's a lot of that in, 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 in Bukowski and, and in uh, and Soroyan, it's like this energy. It's it's free. It's open. It's there's no bars, and it's innocent. There's a kind of, I mean, a lot of people would balk to say that Bukowski is innocent, but I find him very much, uh, very childlike in many ways, very spontaneous and open, and um, yeah. So, and Miller, of course, uh, because of his um, sort of anarchic side too, I think he's in that mix as well. Uh, sort of not so much. Well, anti-American. In the case of Bukowski, I don't think he's so much anti-American, but he's sort of disaffiliated. You know, he he wasn't part of any of the system, if you will, and he he didn't. 
I think in that way he's very close to Miller. And of course, the, quote, obscenity question, I don't think that's really something that he got from Miller. But I think the sort of trenchancy and directness also, maybe that's German, I suppose. But there there are certainly connections. And there's a piece in this new book about Henry Miller. Uh, by, Palisade, living in right, Palisades, right. whereas, whereas Bukowski's on Skid Row. Exactly. Right. <laughs> well, David, let's take a short break and then we'll come back and we'll talk more and, and hear some from the book. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program. David Kellan, he's edited the second volume, Charles Bukowski, Absence of the Hero. We'll be back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Uh, Brian Delaney is in the engineering chair. And today on the program, I'm happy to have David Kalan here. His book, Charles Bukowski, Absence of the Hero, Uncollected Stories and Essays, Volume 2, 1946 to 1992. Um, David, a word about the music. You, you mentioned in the first quarter um, Bukowski's love of classical music and your own, actually. Um, could you talk a little bit about the pieces of music you've chosen for today's show? Yeah, I picked uh, all composers that Bukowski admired, and um, it's, we began with Handel, the Concerto Grosso, and then we just uh, segued from um, Sibelius, the Fifth Symphony. And Bukowski wrote frequently about classical music in his poems and all through his short stories and novels. And um, he knew a lot about classical music, actually. He read uh, a lot about it. And uh, the other composers are Shostakovich and Mahler and Stravinsky. And I think part of my effort, and we, you mentioned the first book I did, the interview book, has been to rescue Bukowski from this image of him as this uh, misogynistic, uh, you know, drunken kind of uh, vulgar person. Another round for all my friends. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. But he, he he's actually... Um, culture to the fingertips and um i i i wait what do you mean about that what do you mean? <laughs> well i mean that he um he loved uh, he loved beauty and he loved beautiful art and um i think that it's um obscured by the popular misconception of him as a boorish uh, primitive i think he he was um a lot of that was an act it was like uh, his uh, shtick you know of, of uh, pretending because he was a deeply sensitive person, I think. And so the, the whole music thing is very moving for me since, uh, again, uh, we have similar taste, <laughs> I suppose. Cause, in fact, there's a section near the end of the Sibelius Fifth Symphony, which I think that uh, Sibelius was probably his favorite composer, which is just 
you know, terrific, and uh, knocks her socks off where the horns come in. And uh, But, um, yeah, so I think that uh, basically he's been uh, misinterpreted very frequently by people who have either read him very superficially or read just some of his work and don't understand really what, what he was about, which I think is a, which I'm trying to rescue perhaps partially. I mean, I think that, again, the interview book makes it clear because uh, he talks frequently about music, but then he talks about literature, about Lipo and Celine and Dostoevsky, Turgenev, uh, and uh, even Artaud. In fact, in the first book, I included a review he wrote of Artaud. I mean, who would have thought that Bukowski had read Antony to Artaud, but he did and, and loved him. Um, so anyway, that's part of what I'm up to. I think I'm, yeah, trying to, to show that... Uh, He's got culture. <laughs> <laughs> well, and in your introduction, too, one of the ideas you put forth is that he, in his stories and in his poems and, and, and essays, he's offer, often referencing these things that are considered high culture right. um, or like other writers, et cetera, and, and putting them in the same line as something that's considered low culture. Right. And, and, and you say it's in an effort to show, to equalize the two. Right. And maybe that was part of his mission, really, to show that things aren't, that there's not just one thing that's meant to be recognized as holy in our culture, <laughs> especially if it's something that's dusty and, and only recognized by the academies. Absolutely. Or, yeah, I think he's trying to, um, in fact, he's doing that with poetry too, desacralizing it and sort of saying, you know, uh, I can I can talk about drinking beer and having a sort of a, a wild night uh, at the same time I'm listening to Mahler. And he likes that kind of juxtaposition because I think he is um, bringing it down from Parnassus into the viscerality of everyday life. And I think that he's, he's equalizing. I think you're right. And he's a... Um, he's also being playful about it. You know, it's like we don't have to be snobby about it. It's It's a... And, and yes. plus, it's beautiful. It's it's and daily life is beautiful too, even in its horror for him. So, um, yeah, I don't think he set out to do it consciously, but he he does it because it's natural to him. I think. And, yes. And I think he he likes to poke fun at pretentiousness all the time. I think and and, and phoniness and uh, you know, he loved J D. Salinger too, and who wrote a whole novel about phoniness. <laughs> so I think he that's part of it. Yeah. And you mentioned before we came right before we came on the air, David, that it would have been his 90th birthday in August. Yes, right. And so um, and, and what does that. So so this has this book being coming out this year has a certain like you, you it feels right to you. Yeah. In fact, uh, actually, I was in Germany in the summer in Andernach. There's a band of Bukowski lovers as a Bukowski gazelle shaft. And uh, I was there with other people who adore him. And uh, I gave a talk there. And so I got to see his hometown, which I had seen before because I'd been there last year, too. But but they left uh, when he was but, two, David? Is that? Yes. Uh, yeah. They left when he was two and came to Baltimore first and then Pasadena. And then, um, you know, basically he was in California um, all the way till his early 20s and then he went on this sort of under yara then he left his parents house and went to philadelphia and new york and all over and um in fact that's where the barfly story starts in this bar in philadelphia i mean that's the real place that it took place and um but uh yeah he was a los angeles person though and he writes about la frequently and um in fact there's a piece in here about la uh, la poetry um 
and uh, and and how he considers it to be several um, several hours driving in any direction, and right. it's still considered that region to be part of the the spiritual aspect of the poetry of the the area. Yeah, so very much of of a place, even though he was born in another country and has traveled widely, lived in other cities, very much of that Southern California, that spirit there somehow. I think so, yeah. In fact, uh, Barfly was kind of good. Barbe Schroeder made a point of, you know, foregrounding the palm trees and also these very seedy apartments that he left lived in, uh, you know, on Mariposa and the Vermont and that part of L.A., Alvarado Street. Um but uh, and then he lived in East Hollywood for a while, um, and uh, all that comes through in, in the books all the time. But um, yeah, he talks frequently about LA. You know, the, plus the point that it's sort of looked down upon as a cultural outpost, and um, so he kind of makes fun of that too uh, in that essay about um, you know you don't have to be in Paris to write poetry. He says something like that, and that's very true. I mean. Um, but I think he's also thinking of L.A. and the tradition of John Fonte and, and um, even the crime writers, you know, because his last novel was Pulp, you know, Chandler. And he's very aware of L.A.'s literary past, too. And I think he and, the, and also California in general, I mentioned before, but Robinson Jeffers is a big hero of his. And not many people read Jeffers now, but, um, you know, he was up in Big Sur and uh, Bukowski knew about him and he admired him. So I think there is that sort of self, not self-consciousness, but he's aware that he's in a Californian literary tradition, which is part of, again, Soroyan too. But um, Yes, and so are, is it, are you surprised that, because that, you're very much a part, it seems like that's what your your pursuit, your academic obsession right. has been, right. or, or just not even just academic, but in your life, like right. grafting into you, David. Right. So are you surprised that you, you're here in Michigan and and teaching in Ypsilanti, living in Ann Arbor, or... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have mixed feelings about L.A. I mean, my, my father didn't like it very much because of the smog and the traffic and the highways, and we, we ended up moving to a place called Thousand Oaks, which is a suburb of L.A. for my teenage years, and I, I don't really have any nostalgia about it about California. A Thousand sounds, Oaks sounds like one yeah. of those new, like in the, that <laughs> new suburb time, like where there wasn't a Thousand Oaks there, there you know, but they still called it something like that. <laughs> right. No, it was a real bucolic, very bucolic place. Uh, it was, uh, there were really oak trees there. So, but it was nice. There were maybe a thousand. <laughs> no one, no one ever was a stickler enough to count them as I was suggesting. Right. Um, well, even Bukowski gestures to the smog in one of his essays. If the smog doesn't get us, maybe you can resell this book that you bought for a dollar 35 later on and it'll be, you know, pay your rent for a month or something. So his humor is always coming. Well, let's hear, could we hear a piece from your introduction, David? And then, um, and then when we come back, maybe we'll hear if you'd like to read us some pieces from Bukowski's, like one of the essays we've mentioned or a story. Sure, I'd be glad to. Actually, um, one thing I try to do in the introduction is um, there's been a controversy about Bukowski's relationship to the beat writers. Mm -hmm. um, And sometimes he's lumped in with the beats and literary talk. And um, it's a difficult issue in some ways because uh, Bukowski in many ways has a lot in common with him. So I tried to trace a bit of that and... uh, well, Ferlin Getty, it seems like, gave him his first big break with getting him the first reading in San Francisco with City Lights. That's right. In 72. And, but, and even earlier, uh, he had appeared with Ferlin Getty and The Outsider in the early 60s, and he was already appearing in a lot of these underground play, uh, magazines with 
Ferlinghetti and Ginsburg and Burroughs and blah, blah, blah. In fact, that the, the Klachtowedstein that I mentioned before <laughs> of Carl Wiesner, in that very issue that Bukowski appears in, there's also Ginsburg and there's also Burroughs. So, and then he met Harold Norse, uh, who was also sort of in the beat orbit. And so there are a lot of, um, he, he had been, and in fact, this is interesting. I, I even would go so far as to say that um, Bukowski was a beat before the beats, and I'm sort of quoting him there, that I think in many ways he was doing many of the things they were before they were even, and uh, in a different way, but that he was already, he had already dropped out of American society, basically. Did he know Robert Duncan, too, or did he? No, he wasn't no. part of that crowd oh, okay, at all. Okay. Uh, um, Sorry, then but, go back no, no. to your train but, of um, Yeah, so, um, anyway, I'll just read a bit of this, because I, uh, uh, if there, is there still time before the break? Okay. Um, Indeed, Bukowski's involvement with the underground press, both as contributor and editor, put him in the direct line of combat during the contentious struggle for free speech during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. As early as 1957, Wallace Berman was raided by the L.A. Vice Squad. In 1966, Steve Richmond, who had published Bukowski in his magazines Earth and Earth Rose, had writings from his bookshop in Santa Monica confiscated. D.A. Levy, the dynamo of the Mimeo Revolution, published Bukowski's poem, The Genius of the Crowd, which was seized by the police. Quote, Levy was arrested and jailed along with Jim Lowell, proprietor of the great Asphodel bookshop, a welcoming home for new poetry for over 30 years, on charges of distributing obscene material in Cleveland, unquote. When John Bryan asked Bukowski to edit Renaissance II in September 1968, he solicited a story by Jack Micheline titled Skinny Dynamite about, quote, a red-haired New York girl who liked to fuck, unquote, which resulted in Brian's arrest. Thus, as a creature of the underground and as an advocate of freedom of speech, Bukowski had always been in sympathy with the ideals of the counterculture. And as we see from his anti-war essay, Peace Baby is a Hard Sell, 1962, at the beginning of the 60s, Bukowski was in accord with pacifism and love, although he put on the outer mask of the tough guy misanthrope to hide his essential tenderness. It should come as no surprise then that Bukowski would have deep links with the beat writers. Although the nature of his connection to the beats has been a matter of some controversy among historians, he read their work closely and appeared with many of them in the same publica publications such as The Outsider, Evergreen Review, Beatitude, Transatlantic Review, City Lights Anthology, Acid, Neue Amerikanische Zena, Unmuzzled Ox, El Corno Emplumado, Semina, Hearse, Wild Dog, Naked Ear, and Bastard Angel. And as the 60s uh, progressed, an increasing number of significant writers and beat circles came to appreciate his work. Kenneth Rexroth would positively review Bukowski's it Catches My Heart in Its Hands in the New York Times on July 5th, 1964. Uh, and then in the next section, I talk about the, his relation to Harold Norris, uh, who was in the Beat Hotel in Paris. Uh, and then the uh, fact that Bukowski reviewed Ginsburg's Empty Mirror in 1967, which I include in this book. In fact, Bukowski liked Ginsburg. This is also another uh, a misnomer that uh, uh, he was, he, he has a famous. Uh, he has a section where he basically says Ginsburg really opened up American poetry, and he read him very closely. Uh, uh, <clears throat> then he writes a, uh, in 1967, he encountered Neil Cassidy, who was Dean Moriarty in Kerouac's On the Road, who became the subject of one of Bukowski's Notes of, Notes of a Dirty Old Man columns. In 1969, he appeared with Norris and Philip Lamantia in Penguin Poets 13, and uh, Lamantia, or Lamantia was an Italian-American poet 
who was also associated with the Beats. So, uh, and then, as you said, Ferlinghetti published uh, Dirty Old Man, the reprint of it anyway, and invited him to San Francisco. So just there you can see quite a few links. And then there are also stories in the, I include in the book where he meets Gregory Corso. He liked Gregory Corso and Jake, Jack Michelin. So um, I think there, that's been ignored in literary history about him. I think he really was in sympathy with many of the ideals of the counterculture, basically. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but still also wanting to be an outsider because railing against the university, the acad- right. academy, what he pictured as, as some people making decisions and safe just going towards safe things right. uh, not um yeah I, I don't know but and 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 it seems like also railing a bit against robert creeley if you mentioned <laughs> yeah. in, in this bet more robert creeley <laughs> yeah well let's take a short break um and and we'll be back um to hear more from david kalan his book charles bukowski absence of the hero uncollected stories and essays volume two i'm t hetzel you've got living writers we'll be back You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I wish we could always have that music playing with WCBN FM Ann Arbor's name <laughs> coming right after it. Um, David, you were loving it. Uh, today on the program, David Kalan here, his book, Charles Bukowski, Absence of the Hero. Um, Bukowski also loved this piece. You were like, this. here come the drums. You were really Yeah, I just I couldn't. Ready. Uh, this is shot, that was Shostakovich's 10th symphony. And, I just wanted to read just one line from a poem that Bukowski wrote called 2 a.m., and it's about this piece. Uh, he says, So now Shostakovich's 10th, 2 a.m., closing time, but not here, tonight. Dimitri spins it out, and I borrow from his immense psyche. I feel better and better and better listening to him. He cures me onward, each drink finer, my stupid wounds closing. The tenth goes on, circling these walls. I owe this bastard. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's great. But he has a lot of poems yeah. like that where he's he's writing about Mahler or Stravinsky or whatever, and he's he's in this completely personal relationship with the music, and that he he kind of recounts how it it helps him and and turns him on and excites him. But isn't that what good art? That's why we're making. That's why we're hoping to make something that could be art that reaches across time and to whatever to give someone hope or to give them some sort of strength to keep going or um, 
and 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 not maybe to feel like someone has owes you something <laughs> like right. somebody will one day owe me something but more just to be part of whatever keeps humanity being human going right yeah, i don't know he's got, <laughs> he's got one um about Wagner called my German buddy and he, he, <laughs> he, he, he talks about listening to Wagner and getting goosebumps and this is terrific stuff so anyway and 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 so so that is that is amazing and one of the lines that you quote in your introduction to David it um, the hard life created the hard line and by the hard line I mean the true line devoid of ornament which is interesting because that's almost it, it's it's working in contrast with what music can do, which is like feel like a fullness almost, giving you a fullness. But maybe that that's was what was needed to sustain him. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. So Bukowski was reviewed from what you read to us in the last um, quarter of the hour um, in 1964 in the New York Times. Right. So he had really made it at that point. Like he was not an outsider. He well, was... it's interesting that it was Rex Roth, who was sort of, my point there was he's sort of the ringleader of the beats. He was mm. the one who organized the big reading at the gallery uh, the, um, in San Francisco when Ginsburg read Howell and um, that he was aware of him. And um, yeah, so yeah, no, but you're right. 64 was a, it's, the New York Times is not bad. So that's, <laughs> He's starting to get known by then, yeah. And and just just for a moment, other other quotes that you mention um, as in jokes for devoted Bu- Bukowskians. I love that there's Bukowskians. Um, uh, genius could mean the ability to say a profound thing in a simple way, and and then endurance is more important than truth. Right. Yeah, that's a passage from the Big Dope reading where he. Um, which is a, an account of a reading he gave. And I mean, not it's a fictionalized uh, account of a reading he gave in Florida. And, um, and a play my, on words, isn't it? <laughs> I think so. At least I thought so. A big dope reading. Dope and dope, right? But he, he he's, I'm glad you brought this up because we talked about it, a bit about it before we went on about his playfulness. He, he makes fun of himself. I mean, it's self-parody because here he is, the character Chinaski quoting Bukowski, really. These <laughs> his two most famous little sayings. And um, there's a lot of that. And that, that's also where people have gotten him wrong about misogyny. Um, and he's said this himself. Yes, sometimes he makes fun of women, but he makes fun of himself just as much or more. And I think that... Um, one has to keep in mind the parodist and the ironist in Bukowski at all times. He's very, very hip <laughs> about the subtleties of gender warfare. And people tend to take him at face value, and in which case they misread him completely, I think. So um, I tried to talk a bit about that, too, in the introduction. In fact, I even quote Lacan, you know, his famous saying, there is no sexual relationship. <laughs> you know, this idea that he's playing with that all the time, you know, that... Um, that love relationships are full of uh, sort of delusion, and he's always trying to break through into something real with uh, with the person, with the woman he's in love with, uh, and it, it's a struggle, and it's back and forth, and there are moments when he really achieves that 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 intimacy, but a lot of the time it's um, it's war all the time, like he says in one of his poetry books. It's not easy. But um, he's Lawrencean in that way. He loved D.H. Lawrence. He wrote about D.H. Lawrence. And um, that's what Lawrence's great theme was. How do you break through to their authentic connection with someone? And, well, mentioning also the the playfulness in that, too, um, I'm not sure 
which story it was in. I'm wondering if it is in the the eighty the eighty airplanes. Does that make sense? Oh yes. The, um, when he's talking about um, he and his lady, and um, they're they're trying with the sixty nine, and now they keep getting interrupted. Oh or, no, that's so, uh, that... um, that's another one. That's the um, that's one of the autobiographical. Oh, okay. Oh, that's the Henry Miller one, I think. Oh, is it the Henry Miller lives in Palisades yeah. and I live on Skid Row? Okay. Well, anyway, but there's humor. There's just... Every, <laughs> right. Anyway, well, actually... Well, he quotes uh, Boccaccio. I mean, he says that he loved Boccaccio's Decameron because uh, it was so funny about sex and that sex... I mean, sex is comedy, basically. And the, 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 <laughs> other, the other thing is James Thurber because Bukowski was a wonderful cartoonist. And when you look at his cartoons, yes. they're very similar to Thurber. And Thurber, that's his great theme. Uh, you know, is sex really necessary? He's always making fun of sex. And um, I think Thurber is much more important than people think with Bukowski. Um, Did they know each other? I don't think he ever met him, but I, he, he liked him very much. And so, yeah, and you bring up, I, I love that, that Bukowski actually illustrated some of his own his his own writings. And is that something that you'll be also publishing uh, or, or is it already out there David like it's looking funny at you some say of those. that because I tried to get city lights to use some of his cartoons and I, I hope in the next book they do because uh, Stacy Lewis if you're listening at city lights <laughs> hi Stacy <laughs> everybody at city lights <laughs> because uh, he was a very talented uh, you know LA City College he actually took art for a while I think he had art and journalism and um and w- when his books were published in private editions, he uh, in limited editions, he would contribute paintings. So many of them, they're quite expensive on the collector's market. If they, but they, uh, um, you know, he'd do an actual oil painting and include it in the text. And uh, he liked to paint. He painted a lot. And so. And so he was painting, drawing, writing poems, right. stories, right. essays, and then he was doing all sorts of odd jobs and working at the post office right. to make ends meet so that what he he could do what he wanted. Right. Very much so. And uh, yeah, I mean, I guess you get all three arts, poetry, music, and his love of music and painting. Did he art. play instruments too, David? Uh, no. <laughs> Although there's a picture of him at the piano. He has the that poetry book, uh, play the percussion, play the piano like a percussion instrument until your fingers begin to bleed a bit. Uh, but, you know, he was just pounding on it but uh, no he didn't didn't play any instrument played the radio you know that's the whole thing is that he used to <laughs> he used to like to write with the radio on all the time you know and he would that's was his real ritual and and you and you mentioned earlier that you've you when you were working at the Laverty a collection and other places like you've been photocopying you've also collected on it sounds like eBay and and different pieces of right. so are you amassing your own Bukowski archive David or uh, not really I mean I'm not a collector but I, I because of wanting to put these books together I did it sort of practically but um, but I I've I've gone through this sort of mania before I did it with Soroyan my uh, I collect I because I wanted to read every, I mean, I'm sure everybody is like that who really loves a writer. You want to read everything they've written. And so I did that with, with Sir Ryan and Henry Miller also. I think I, I have just about everything both of them wrote. Um, but it's a kind of, it's selfish. It's just a desire to 
give myself more pleasure by reading everything they wrote. But but what you're doing here with these volumes and with City Lights help is being unselfish where you're trying to get bring these works right. back into right. to the light of day cuz even, you know, there's on the back of this of the volume 2 is a, a blurb by Tom Waits. Um, you know, <laughs> I you know, glad to see more of him in the world and Brian Evanson. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so this seems unselfish, trying to bring him back into the sunlight. <laughs> right. Um, well, would you like to read a, a bit of like a, a short piece from from one of Bukowski's stories or essays? Sure. Um, actually, there is um, the one you mentioned also. Uh, uh, Actually, there's one called The House of Horrors, which is about writing. And this was actually uh, appeared in Playboy in April. They they excerpted it. And I thought that was kind of nice because Bukowski had been published in the uh, French and German Playboys, but never in the American edition of Playboy. And he had submitted stories to them. In fact, one of them I include in this book called uh, Christ with Barbecue Sauce, which uh, which was rejected by Playboy, but which is a really neat story. But so anyway, so now he has finally appeared. Uh, his time has uh, come. His time has come uh, to be in that August literary uh, um, publication. But um, okay, so this is the House of Horrors. Talking about writing is like talking about love or love making or love living. Too much talk about it can kill it off. Without seeking them out, I have unfortunately met many writers, both successful and unsuccessful. I mean at their craft. As human beings, they are a bad lot, a distasteful lot. Bitchy, self-centered, vicious. One thing they almost all have in common, they each believe their work great, perhaps the greatest. If they become successful, they accept it as their normal due. If they fail, they feel that the editors and the publishers and the gods are against them. And it's true that many bad writers are pushed and manipulated to the top, whatever the reason may be. It's also true that many great writers have starved to death, or almost starved to death, or killed themselves, or gone mad, and so forth, and were later discovered as fine, though dead, talents. This historical fact gives heart to the writer who is truly bad. He likes to imagine that his, her failure is caused by any number of things besides simply being a poor talent. Well, so we all, we have all that. Also, when I think of the writers that I know, mostly poets, I notice they are supported by others. Wives, mostly mothers, carry the economic load of those that I know, and they are quite comfortable with TV sets, loaded refrigerators and apartments or houses by the sea, mostly at Venice and Santa Monica, and they sun themselves in the day, feeling tragic, these male friends of mine, and then at night, perhaps a bottle of wine and a watercress sandwich, followed by a wailing letter of their penury and greatness to somebody somewhere. Anything but writing, working, getting it done, getting the word down. Well, I guess it beats working a punch press. The wives and the mothers will work the punch press. Don't worry about that. And the poets, having not lived in the outside world, in reality, they will then really have nothing to write about, which they do with great ego and much dullness. It is almost impossible to write about writing. I remember once after giving a poetry reading, I asked the students, any questions? One of them asked me, why do you write? And I answered, why do you wear that red shirt? <laughs> Being a writer is damning and difficult. If you have a talent, it can leave you forever while you are sleeping one night. What keeps you going in the game is not easy to answer. Too much success is destructive. No success at all is destructive. A little rejection is good for the soul, but total rejection creates cranks and madmen, rapists, sadists, drunkards, and wife beaters, just as 
too much success does. I too have been misled by the romantic concept of writing. As a youth, I saw too many movies of the great artist, and the writer was always some tragic and very interesting chap with a fine goatee, blazing eyes, and inner truths springing to his tongue continually. What a way to be, I thought. Ah, but it isn't so. The best writers that I know talk very little. I mean those who are doing the good writing. In fact, there is nothing duller than a good writer. In a crowd or even with one other person, he is always busy, subconsciously recording.